So the big question is, how can physical therapists create a successful career earning six figures or more and give patients the care they need without relying on insurance companies for reimbursement? If you want to learn the answers to those questions and more, then you've come to the right place. My name is Dr. Aaron LeBauer, physical therapist, business coach, serial entrepreneur, and author of the Cash PT Blueprint. Thanks for joining me today. Hello, welcome back to the Cash PT Lunch Hour podcast. This is your host, Aaron LeBauer, and today my special guest is Beth Shelley. Beth is uh, one of the pioneers in uh, pelvic health physical therapy, and believe it or not, I've been following her in, in her um, pelvic journal club since 2012. I've just looked it up. I was like, I looked way back in my email. I was like, God, it's 2012. So a few years out of PT school, uh, our mutual friend, uh, Jane O'Brien, uh, Jane, I met her at an MFR course, and she said, uh, you got to look up Beth Shelley, and I did. And um, I've got a ton of stuff from your uh, pelvic health resources. Even though we're not a specialty practice, I've just helped uh, been able to use that to help so many people and so many women. So thank you. And thank you for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day, Beth. Yeah, glad to be here. Um, well, I love to start these shows like because um, a lot of people may not have heard of you or known uh, who you are. Um, some of the um, pelvic PTs listening will be like, oh, I know Beth. But I'd love you to spend some time just... Like one or two minutes, like, can you share like a little history? Like, how'd you get into PT and, and what turned you on to, yeah, how'd you get into PT and decide like physical therapy is the thing for you? We'll start there. Well, I was thinking originally I wanted to be a gym teacher. Wow. So that was my original thought. My dad was a teacher. He taught woodshop and he said to me, no child of mine is going to be a teacher. He did not think very highly, in particular, of the public school system. Yeah. Well, I am a teacher. I'm a teacher through and through. I just don't teach in the uh, public school system. Uh, But at the time, my mom was going through some uh, medical diagnoses, and he was asking everyone in the hospital, what do you do? Do you like it? How's the job market? And he said, this is just like gym teacher, so go do this. And that's how I fell into physical therapy. Oh, that's funny. You know, my mom used to say, you should be a teacher. And I was like, I don't want to teach people that don't want to learn from me because I was in high school. I was like, people don't want to learn, you know, this stuff. Um, but that's cool. So you went from uh, from not be, being told not to be a teacher to a teacher. Um, right. how, how many years did that take? Well, I think I graduated in 1985 and I began teaching uh prenatal and postpartum exercise mm-hmm. right out of school. Okay. So when I went to my first job and I said, this is what I want to do. I had already taken the landmark course from Elizabeth Noble at the yeah. time. And I really wanted to treat pregnant and postpartum women. So I began as an aerobics instructor there and right out of school and then started to teach physical therapists about pelvic therapy and obstetrics in 1993 when I worked at Elizabeth's clinic, Cambridge Physical Therapy at the time uh, was owned by Holly Herman and Tricia Jenkins. Mm -hmm. So that was my start of professional teaching. Oh, wow. That's neat. What what was it that... um, that occurred or what did you learn or what did you experience that you were like, you know, pelvic floor physical therapy is my thing or working with women or expectant mothers versus, I don't know, like people getting knee repairs. I mean, what was there like something that like sparked your interest or really hit you pretty hard and you're like, this is my life's work? Well, that is a typical story. What I hear at least is that women as they're having babies are thinking, wow, there's a lot of physical changes that are going on. There's got to be something we can do to help these people. Mm -hmm. And that's really where I came to, uh, recognizing in college that there really wasn't anything. In fact, at that point, what they were saying is, you can do this and this, but not during pregnancy. And you can do that, but not with pregnant girls. And, you know, just all over the board, it was, don't do anything with these women. And I had already had one child, and so I knew that there was a lot of physical changes, and I really felt like we had things to offer. So I was drawn mostly from my own experience. And that was, again, into that prenatal, postpartum uh, side of things. Mm -hmm. From there, 
uh, people started to tell me, well, when I go to exercise class, I'm leaking. And that opened up the door to the pelvic dysfunctions, eventually working into pain. And then men, then we add the pediatrics, the geriatrics and the neurology. And um, it's just been a wonderful ride. Yeah, that's really awesome. That's neat. I think, you know, like for me, it was, you know, I, I came from massage therapy and, uh, you know, things that people thought were like, I mean, I, I just, people tell me all the weirdest things. And in PT school, people are like about pelvic health, pelvic floor. And they're like, I would never do that. I'm like, what do you mean you would never do that? I want to like, to me, it's not an aversion. And to me, it was more of a, I'm a man and, you know, I'm not hundred percent comfortable going into a room with a woman to doing any internal stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and I yes, still am not, but there are you know, men in the yeah. U.S. that are treating men. Right. So right. that's really quite helpful. And I agree with you. I don't understand how women's health as a whole or even pelvic health, the smaller specialty working with the pelvic floor dysfunction. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how they are listed as alternative, because right. really in Europe in the 1970s, it was an undergraduate skill. Mm-hmm. It has been for many, many years in European countries, uh, just like anything else, just like yeah. geriatrics or orthopedics. It's just another thing you can choose to specialize in. So I don't know. Is it is it because sex is a stigma in our country? And so you wouldn't think so. I mean, goodness, <laughs> in England, we we learned originally from Joe Laycock in yeah. England, and they're a lot more conservative than we are. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Uh, I, I think it's getting better, though. I hear more and more that students are coming out of school with an interest, which right. I think is really healthy. We have over 15 residencies at this point in women's health. And I, I do believe there's it's becoming more yeah. accepted as a another branch of physical therapy. And mm-hmm. truthfully, half of the population that you're seeing in your clinic is women. Right. So right. you're treating them whether you think you are or not. And with the percentage of women that we know are leaking, mm-hmm. you are treating people who are leaking without even knowing that they are. Right. And that's really a, a loss, especially when you consider in the field of uh, um, orthopedics, we know so much about how the pelvic floor contributes or doesn't mm-hmm. to back pain and issues of stability. So more and more, I think it's accepted. Yeah, I, I think it, and it's really great. I mean, a friend of mine here in Greensboro, Wilda Young, you may or may not know who she is, but um, she owns a, a pelvic uh, health um, and women's specialty practice here. I think at one point she couldn't find another thing. There was like six years where she couldn't find someone else who had actually wanted to do it with her. And I think it's great. I, I agree with you. There's younger students, but is it, is there some other reason that this is like ignored or is it just like our ignorance and like marginalization of like women, female bodies? Yeah, I I think, as I said, it is getting better and people are realizing there is a big role for this. And, you know, I work with a lot of colleges and there is better education for the first professional students. So there's, I think, less resistance. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I went to school 12 years ago. And there wasn't that much. It was like, oh, well, Duke has a women's specialty practice if you Mm -hmm. want to do a rotation there. And that was the extent of it. But we also did like two, three hour labs on like soft tissue and no one wanted to be my partner because I guess I was a massage therapist near intimidated. So (laughs) (laughs) Um, what's the biggest thing that you've seen change in terms of women's health or pelvic uh, health uh, PT specifically in the last, you know, 20, 30 years since you've been doing this, teaching it? You know, I think the biggest change is the WCS. So this is Women's Health Certified Specialty. It is a specialty through ABPTS. Um, It started in 2008, uh, 2008. Um, and that was the first specialty that had been added in over 15 years. Wow. So it was really a big accomplishment. We worked for many, many years in securing what we needed to uh, as far as the number of people who said they were going to sit and we, there was funds that were raised and the DSP had to be created. But since that time, it has just been a snowball. We're over 500 now, which is more than electrotherapy the very first certification. Mm -hmm. And um, there's another one that uh, has not very many. I I can't remember which one. 
but I, I only know the top four or something. All yeah, well, it's growing. It's growing. And, and yeah. this is something that I have uh, done for probably about eight years now mm -hmm. is to mentor those who are working towards their WCS. Uh, it's a big test. It costs a lot of money. There's a lot of things to learn. And unfortunately, if you don't study in the right way, you're going to spend a lot of time working uh, that doesn't help. Yeah. And people have failed, sometimes even twice. And they, you know, it's just really a thing that people sometimes find they need direction. But with that change, mm -hmm. I think we have come up in the um, understanding in other countries. So yeah. there are other countries that have these kind of certificates or certifications or board distinctions. And we never could compete with them because we didn't have anything like that. Right. But now internationally, we are more highly regarded because we have the board certification. Yeah, that's great. And what's that? What has that changed for for um, our profession? Like, what has that changed for the the, the people that are um, cert board certified now? Like, is there something different, or is it the education on the way to the uh, certification that really is more meaningful? Well, the as you mentioned, just studying makes you a better therapist. Mm -hmm. And when you're a better therapist, you have better outcomes. And when you have better outcomes, then you have a better business model. So it, it is that as well. But there are some organizations that are providing a, um, financial incentives that you are stepping up the ladder if you are board certified. Mm -hmm. There also is incentives if you are a teacher or a researcher because you are more highly thought of. Right. So I think it just elevates the whole practice when we have this distinction of a specialization. And one thing that's a little bit different than, for instance, orthopedics, mm -hmm. pretty much everyone has a good basics of orthopedics. So when you step into the specialty of women's health or pelvic physical therapy, yep. people think they are a specialist, but that's not true. It's just not the way it is. So it, again, brings that up to a higher level that now you are a specialist in a specialty. Mm -hmm. And uh, really, it can be used in marketing. It can be used to speak to physicians. Uh, it sets you apart. Uh, yeah. Even in my local area here, I'm still the only one who has that distinction. And while we're on the topic, can I, Beth, can I assume when you graduated PT school, you had like a bachelor's or master's degree? BS, right? yes. Okay. So, and this came up, this has been a, a thing that, you know, people struggle with, I think, or triggers people in our profession. You um, have a DPT degree. So you've gone yes. back to do your transitional DPT. Yes. I want to know uh, two questions. Like, why did you feel like that that was important? And uh, like one, Leah, why did you feel like that was important for you to do? Because you're already a specialist, probably top of your game teaching other people. Like, why was it important for you to go back and get that degree? Well, there's something to clarify there. Yeah. Because I got my DPT before the WCS was even available. Mm -hmm. So I, I didn't have that choice. I didn't have the mm -hmm. choice to be board certified. Uh, so there was really no distinction that set you up as a professional. Mm -hmm. And I did go back for the DPT because I felt that was a way to, again, elevate the profession, to help physicians understand that uh, we are at a higher level than uh, people that they write prescriptions. You know, I graduated in 1985. And when I graduated, we would get a prescription that said hot pack, ultrasound and massage mm -hmm. three times a week for 12 weeks. And that's what we did. And it was just ridiculous. And even then, I knew this is not the way I wanted to practice. Right. But it was the standard. That's how we worked. Uh, very quickly after that, I, I couldn't tell you the exact date, but Massachusetts was one of the first states to have uh, practice without referral. So when I worked at Elizabeth Noble's clinic in the early 1990s, we did that. We, people would come in off the street and say, I'm leaking urine. And I would say, great, let's see what's going on. And, and if you need the physician, we'll call them in. Mm -hmm. So this was the way my practice was going from the beginning. Whether you call it a doctor or not, I think we practiced at that level yeah. way back in the 1990s. Yeah. And and I think differential diagnosis is one of the things that sets us apart as an entry level 
practitioner and that's what I strive for as a specialist and that's what I focus on in that WCS um, training. Right. And I, th I think it's important it. what you said is it, it wasn't, it's almost like when what I'm hearing is it almost wasn't as important to have the, the degree as it's the learning, but also practicing at the level of a doctoral profession is more important than like in being able to do the differential diagnosis, bring people off the street and feel comfortable, more important than the, the letters. And the, the letters are basically the signifier that I've achieved this level. Yes. Is that right? Yes. I think that when I post something on Instagram about how we should be proud to call ourselves doctors and people get triggered by it and they're like, well, what about me and what about this? I'm like, it's really, it's about the level at which we practice um, because people, people, <laughs> physicians don't know what we do that well and patients don't know what we do because they still think we do the hot packs, legless and ultrasound, but what we have to do is be able to speak to them in a way that's we're confident that we can take care of them and we know what to do with them if we can't. Wouldn't, wouldn't yeah. you agree? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's a thought process. Yeah, so it's the, it's the it's the, and you like it, I'm just say Beth. I'm I'm not in, I'm just impressed that you articulate it really well, and I just wanted to have to repeat it because I think it's um, it's important because there's all the other things you've done to me. Like that's the one thing. It's like you're operating at the highest level of profession, regard regardless of the letters behind your name. So yes, um, I want to applaud you for that, but I think that's important that. I don't think people are getting that today. Mm. They're either taking it for granted or because they haven't seen the struggle that you have for the Maybe. Right? Maybe that's part of it. It's a historical thing. And, and people who haven't had it, uh, didn't have the choice to have it, yeah. are very grateful that we do have it. Yeah. What else is, like, whether it's women's health or pelvic floor PT or not, like, what else have you seen change over the years in public's perception or in our profession that you know, like some of the people who are even younger than me listening might, you know, benefit from? Well, the, uh, another thing that I think has changed is the patient. Mm -hmm. Because when I first started, the patient came and they were passively receiving a treatment and then they went home. And we already know that that's not successful. That's not as successful as when the patient and the therapist are at equal plane and both working to achieve the final goal. I think that patients are more involved mm. as they rightly should be. Yeah. I a little get a little upset about Dr. Google and sometimes <laughs> people coming in thinking that they know and having read something that it may not have applied to them at all. Um, but if you are able to articulate well, then you can explain things, even if it involves very private parts. Right. And that's a, a, a thing that takes a bit of skill. But even orthopedic therapists, you must be able to explain, why am I asking about your sexual function? Mm -hmm. And why do I care that you're leaking urine? Because those things are important to your practice as well. Uh, and I think patients are able to understand if you are able to explain it well, but they really are more involved than they used to be. Right. What's the question here? And, and I'm going to say this like, okay, like I'm a guy, I'm just really into lifting or I don't, I don't really do. Maybe I'm just a therapist, whether I'm a guy or not, but Aaron's a guy. Um, and uh, I'm actually into cycling, not lifting. But why would well, I? That's even worse. <laughs> right. <laughs> why would I care? Or why would I need to ask one of my patients, like, tell me about your, you know, like, are you having sexual health or leaking? Like, why would I care? And, and then what I really, I think the gold is, is what's the exact wording that I could use so that I don't feel weird about it uh, and my patients don't feel weird about it? Yes. Um, so this is how I approach the question to my students. I teach at the local university here and I do... Um, several different facets of their women's health program. And one of them is the assessment. Yeah. How do we ask questions? And one of the exercises we do is to ask, practice using the words and asking questions. So I do suggest that therapists look into the mirror, hold eye contact with that person and say the word vagina mm -hmm. and say it in a way with confidence that does not uh, feel like you're asking the wrong thing. Yeah. Uh, but as far as the words, what I would suggest is that every physical therapist have on their intake form three questions. And if you put it on the intake form, then it 
comes up a little bit more easily and it's a little easier to start the discussion. Mm -hmm. So the three questions are, do you leak urine? The next question is for women, do you wear a pad for anything other than your cycle? Mm -hmm. And then the third one is, do you have pain during intercourse? So the first two are trying to identify a person who might have weakness in the pelvic floor, which can compromise the core and can be important if that's the area of the body that you're working with. The other question, uh, the question about pain during intercourse is more related to spasm or contracture, which is often a pelvic pain contributor. Mm -hmm. Uh, can contribute to sacral pain because it tethers the sacrum. But those are the three questions that I would suggest everyone ask. Now, I I don't know if you had this book, but it is a very common book being used now in the PT school. It's called Differential Diagnosis for Physical Therapists. Mm -hmm. Did you use that book? Yeah. Yeah, yes. So it's been around for a long time. I've been involved in two edits up to this point and giving my perspective from the women's health pelvic therapy angle so that people are able to incorporate these things into the various locations. Right. Uh, and there is a, a series of thought process uh, that would take you to uh, do you have numbness in the saddle area? Mm-hmm. That's a really important question for a person who's a cyclist. Right. Because that sitting on the saddle can compress the pudendal nerve on the inside of the ischial tuberosity. And then you have a neuralgia, Mm -hmm. which can result in motor and sensory deficits as well as pain. So you have this this technique of, of recognizing what might be connected using that differential diagnosis process that would lead you to asking the questions. Yeah. And then you know the question that you're supposed to ask at the end. Is there Which anything one? else in any other part of your body that's going on at this time? Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, Beth, in PT school, we were taught to ask how many steps they had going into their house and do they have a handrail or not? Oh, that's the differential? <laughs> Well, that was like, those are the questions I learned in PT school that stuck out the most. I was like, why are we asking these questions? Like, I get it if I'm discharging someone from the hospital, maybe. Mm -hmm. But I think it just gets, these are much more important questions. And the reason I bring it up is because they're much more important questions for people's daily life and function. And I was never taught to ask these questions. Mm -hmm. Yep. You know, no, not in PTs. I mean, I had to go learn it myself. And I don't even, I, I would say, I'm not sure we ask all three of those on our intake form. So, you know, we'll, it's we'll a, it's a great yeah. business thing, because mm-hmm. if you do have access to somebody who's treating the pelvic floor, you ask that to every single patient that comes in, you are generating patients right. uh, for that person with the pelvic uh, skills. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. You know, I, um, gosh. That was so, that was so, uh, those were, so, that was so great. I'm like, all right, I, when I get done with this, I'm going to go to this recording, make sure I have those because I think it's, I know it's important and I, and you know, it's important. And I think that, it, you know, and you brought up the best point, like this generally is a business podcast, but I like to bring in people who have different specialties, but it is, it's like, can I identify something where people need help and no one else is really going to help them with this, you know, like most of these problems by uh, are mismanaged, I, I yes. think. I mean, in my experience, like, would yep. you, would you, do you see that too? Yes, yes. Uh, they have pads, loads of them, and then they're given medication. And, you know, we have multiple uh, guidelines from organizations that are telling us that medication is not first. That's uh, second line. First line is behavioral training. And Mm -hmm. behavioral training is what we do. That is uh, for incontinence, bladder training, and pelvic muscle exercise. And uh, Aaron, I just feel like it is absolutely within the scope of every physical therapist training to teach pelvic muscle exercise. And I'd really love to share with people what the best words are. And these are words that we know based on imaging ultrasound. So we can see the recruitment, we can see the movement of the pelvic floor muscle, and we know that when you say these words, you have the best chance of getting that. Mm -hmm. So here are the words. For women, the best description is hold back gas. And I would add to that in church. 
Mm-hmm. And the reason I say in church is because I don't want anyone else to know you're doing this. Right. It is not squeezing the butt. It's not moving the legs. It's not pulling in the belly. It's not holding the breath. It's not squinching the face. Nobody should know that you're doing this on the outside, but you can recognize that that squeeze because in particular women have a very large portion of their pelvic floor posterior Mm -hmm. and it's usually preserved from trauma of childbirth so hold back gas for the ladies gets the elevation uh the instruction stop your pee is what we started with many Mm -hmm. years ago but we actually have some data now that tells us if people actually do practice stopping their urine flow they are creating dysfunction. Wow. They're creating a scenario where the bladder only squeezes partway and does not fully empty. So it's not a good plan. And the really bad thing is if somebody's having trouble with leakage, they can't stop their pee. So telling them to stop their pee is frustrating. It's not helpful in any way. (laughs) So hold back gas. Yeah. For the men, we actually have two instructions because Mm -hmm. for men, the front portion of the pelvic floor is much more influential in the bladder and it is very different from the ladies. So men will also benefit from the instruction hold back gas. But simultaneously, we're asking them if it's possible to pay attention to two areas. But the the best instruction for the men is shorten the penis. Mm -hmm. So that uh, motion of pulling back in the front is the one that causes the compression of the urethral sphincter best. Now, you know, we have to develop other little tricks uh, for people who are having more difficulty, but at least 40% of people can understand those instructions without a vaginal or rectal exam, without biofeedback equipment, with only verbal instruction. So you can have a pretty good shot at instructing your orthopedic patient how to do this, with those um words yeah wow wow that's awesome that's really great so um uh hold back gas hold back gas like you're in church hold back gas and my my words don't always come out right and then shorten the penis yes perfect okay what now what about those people that have like uh overactive pelvic floor muscles Mm. this is a bit of a challenge to identify but as you can understand If you do strength training on a person that has a muscle spasm, Mm -hmm. it's going to make it worse. Mm -hmm. So the uh, recommendation, as you learned, is to uh, proceed for one month. And if they're not better or if they're worse, then you got to get more input. So that's my first suggestion. But I would ask more questions if there was a pain scenario. So we've got the pain with intercourse pain with sitting in the perineal area or tailbone pain and pain from sit to stand in the tailbone is hallmark of that area. Um, The uh, occurrence of urgency frequency where you have to really go to the bathroom very badly, um, that can be a weakness condition, but you have to be careful that they know how to relax as well. Constipation is another uh, thing that can be related to that constriction and that holding um, situation. So in these conditions, what I do, and this is uh, the world according to Beth, but you're welcome to use it, and that is an anti-Kegel. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Arnold Kegel was a guy in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, a gynecologist that used a pressure biofeedback device inside the vagina to teach women how to squeeze the muscle so that they would have less leakage and better sexual appreciation. Mm -hmm. So Kegel exercise technically is strength training. The anti-Kegel, therefore, is not for the purpose of strengthening or squeezing better, but for the purpose of relaxing better. And again, we have both pressure and EMG data that tell us if you do a small squeeze and then a big relax, contract relax is basically what we're using. Mm -hmm. But we do know that this is helpful in being able to relax better. So I'll teach them to do that small squeeze and big relax and only have them do 10. So a small number in a relaxed position, focus on the relax. And if you use this, please make sure when they come back the next time 
you ask them how they did it, and you make sure they understand. So I always say to them, so this is a test. Why did I ask you to do that exercise? And I would say still about half the time people say, to contract better or to squeeze better or so that I don't leak or something like that, which is exactly wrong. But somehow they all feel like the squeeze part is the important thing. So you have to just check to make sure they understand the relaxed part is key. And then, of course, I have EMG and imaging ultrasound that we can see it better. Is there like a visualization that helps with that or is that just confusing for some people? No, it's not necessarily confusing. The pelvic floor is kind of like a bowl. So we have Mm -hmm. this bowl here uh, going this way in the body. And when it squeezes, it goes up. And I would want to make sure that they can recognize, okay, I feel when I squeeze, it goes up. But even more importantly, when you relax, it goes down. Mm -hmm. So I encourage them to think about down towards the feet. Now, there have been some in particular um, in the alternative realm who have used visualizations like imagine the sit bones are separating. They actually don't separate, obviously, but if you if you have a good ability to imagine, to visualize, to use your mind to affect things, that separation is part of the lowering. But it is a lowering towards the feet that is most helpful. And then you have people remember, what does it feel like when you release gas? What does it feel like when you move your bowels if you can do that well? And that's the signal of relaxing. Got it. Is there um, a difference like uh, with the cues for men and women? Is it uh, is that a um, like a, a more of a visual thing or is it there's an, an anatomy um, kind of uh, contributor? Is it like the way our pelvis sits or stands or is it mostly just a, a pregnancy um, contributor that you think might be different or, you know? Yeah, uh, I think there's a lot of ways we can go with that question. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about guys for just a Mm -hmm. sec. All right. So men pee standing, the majority of men pee standing. And the amazing thing is this, you know, I don't have this structure because it's not what I do, Mm -hmm. but I ask a lot of questions to a lot of guys. And I must think that in the public male bathroom, there's this whole thing going on. Women have no idea. All the things that, that, you know, you do this, you don't do this, you got to look this way and don't, yeah, don't rules. touch this. That's a whole thing. <laughs> Ladies, you have no idea. Well, we have rules. You guys have like a, a lounge area or something like that, right? <laughs> <laughs> you shut the door and do what you do. Um, but just think about this. You're in the standing position. Mm-hmm. A man has to get a little bit of hip extension in order to shut off some of the hip muscles because when you're contracting the glutes and the adductors you're facilitating the pelvic floor and you can't relax completely and you're not going to empty completely so you got to get a little bit of hip extension to shut off those muscles so think about the parkinson's patient who can't get to neutral never mind into hip extension so we kind of have that scenario as far Uh as position going on Then we have the amazing ability to relax the front, but keep the back. And I understand that sometimes it doesn't help and you Mm -hmm. have a a release of gas when you're peeing. But oftentimes there is that ability to differentiate between these muscle groups, where in women, that isn't the case. It's Mm -hmm. just relaxing completely, all front and back. Wow. So there's the positional issues are, are very quite interesting. Yeah. Uh, we know that when you're in an anterior tilt, you have better support in the pelvic floor mm-hmm. so that people who have a flat back tend to have more prolapse. Uh, People who have a lot of an arch, like uh, the African-American community, Mm -hmm. they tend to have less prolapse. Uh, It activates better or best in the neutral position. Uh, It works with the diaphragm. Here's another very good caveat for that uh, pain person. The respiratory diaphragm going this way and the pelvic diaphragm going this way, they are buddies. Mm -hmm. When you breathe with the respiratory diaphragm, it descends. And in order to keep the pressure in the abdominal and pelvic cavity stable, the belly is going to pooch out 
That's how we know, right? But the pelvic floor relaxes down. So inhale should have pelvic muscle relax. And so in telehealth, what I'll do is have people on a relatively firm chair where they can feel the sit bones Mm -hmm. and pay attention to the perineum, the space in between. And then we practice the diaphragm breath and notice that the pelvic floor is coming towards the chair during the inhale. And that can help in the process of getting that muscle to release. That's a that's such a great little tidbit. I mean, I'm sure that's helpful for a lot of people right now. Um, are there any other little uh, tricks or signs like when a patient tells you this, like you should ask it? Like, so we've got these three questions on the questionnaire, but like, say my patient with back pain or hip pain or you know whatever, like, is there a question or a a, a, a um, what's it called? like a practice pattern that you identify like a like pattern recognition, you're like, when the patient says this, you, you better ask this other question, whether yes. you're a pelvic floor therapist or not. Yeah. So one of the things that I would like to challenge uh, everyone to consider, mm-hmm. especially in the older population. So we're talking about people who maybe have a little bit of a balance difficulty. We're trying to do some strength training, um, certainly applicable to the homebound elderly. And that is, how many times do you get up at night to go to the bathroom? Mm-hmm. Now, what I'm talking about is not the pee before you go to bed and not the pee that you get up to stay up for the day, but what is going on in between that? Will you sleep before and after? This is called nocturia. And we know that if older people are getting up three or more times, they are more likely to fall and break their hip. Mm-hmm. So Mm -hmm. now we have a big impact. We can have a very big impact in this person's ability in, you know, going forward in life, whether they're going to be in a nursing home or not, by helping them to uh, be able to do better at night. So how many times do you get up to go at night? And if they get up three or more times, now we have to get into what do you do? What what kind of things could be helpful? Mm-hmm. Not only do you want to make sure that the track to the bathroom is clear, so you want the usual things you would think of like a, um, a nightlight, uh, not, no obstacles in the way, no throw rugs, make sure the walker is close, um, you know, all of these things that we would do already. But also, what are you drinking before bed? Now, sometimes people get this idea, you know, if I stop drinking before bed, then I won't get up at night. And they stop at 3 or 5 p.m. That's way too early. Mm -hmm. It takes about, really, it takes about 45 minutes. But to give a space for the bladder, uh, the kidneys uh, to create, I ask people to stop drinking two hours before bed. So if they go to bed at 9, they're going to stop at 7. And that allows them to pee whatever they have just had out before they go to bed. And if they're sleeping deeply, this is very interesting. Mm -hmm. Our kidneys make less pee per minute if we're sleeping deeply. Wow. Wow. So sometimes it's a sleep problem Mm -hmm. that's making them make more pee. But oftentimes they're getting up because their shoulder hurts or their hip hurts and they figure, "Ah, I might as well go to the bathroom. Don't do that. It's right. not good. Well, I or think this is. Go back to sleep. I want to. I want to bring like why this is so important, and because uh, I had a family member who fell recently, uh, fractured their you know femoral neck, and had a reduction like the you know screws or O R I F. But I'm like, this is a problem. Like they, she, she needs physical therapy because. The, and I looked up the stats. It's like there's a 25 percent mortality rate within the first year for someone over 75. Like that's a huge number. That's a massive number. It is a big impact. Yeah. Very big. And 50% of people are discharged to uh, skilled nursing. Mm. And I was just like, these are big numbers. And (laughs) you can influence, potentially, you can influence that by asking that one question, how many times do you get up to go to the bathroom at night? Mm -hmm. And then working towards uh, helping them to understand they shouldn't if they really don't need to go or getting them to somebody who can uh, get a little bit more clearly why and what should be done. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, uh, I mean, that's such a good, that's such a good clinical pearl. That's, and and I think that's the under, that's like this underserved area that we as physical therapists do that people don't appreciate because 
one, it's like, well, it's never, patients are like, it's never going to happen to me. And when it does, <laughs> they don't come see, they, they don't really have the opportunity to come see us because they're, you know, in the emergency room in surgery. Um, but I'd love to know, like, do you, I mean, a big part of my question, and I'd love to know this from your experience, I feel like physical therapy is missing in the conversation around the opioid crisis, around, you know, in, in the hospital, like when my, when we had our kids, like there was no physical therapy, like, like, what do we, and I've got so many things I could say about that, but like, what do we have to do as physical therapists to be part of this, like, conversation around people's normal daily lives and, you know, around these big issues and big areas? Because every, half the population has babies yep. and 25%, if you fall, you're going to be, you're going to die over 75, 25% chance. Mm-hmm. And what, 55% of people who reported back pain were being prescribed opioids in the, you know, past decade. How right. do we become part of this conversation? Right. And I think whether we like it or not, physical therapists are educators. Yeah. And one of the patient groups that we, one of the groups we are educating is patients. And I think, uh, especially with social media and the ease of accessing information, I think that it's important that physical therapists produce educational materials, even little snippets that go out over and over and over again to uh, patients to be able to start these conversations and help them to understand. This is one of the things that women's health physical therapists do in great fervor, and that is the obstetrics and the postpartum moms, to help them to understand that there are things that can be offered. I think that they are searching for something, but they're not sure what they're searching for and they don't know where to get it. Mm. And the original way that we tried to make this happen was to go to the physicians and educate the physicians. I think midwives may be a little bit more interested in uh, learning some of these things, but physicians have so much on their plate. And for them to have all of that recognition, maybe it's just not realistic. But I have banged on a lot of doors and brought a lot of donuts, and it didn't help. (laughs) That's just the way it is. But I think the other angle that is occurring, I am very pleased with, is what is happening with our national organizations. Mm -hmm. So the APTA I was just reading is really working on the opioid issue. And they're really working towards increasing the awareness, not only to the patients with their branding and who they have access to, but also to legislators and to insurance companies. And they are our voice. I think they have been doing a good job. Uh, The Pelvic Academy, of course, is for women's health or pelvic therapy. Uh, They have a whole postpartum thing going on right now. So those Those uh, groups, I think, are very useful. And I just saw a post on Facebook today. Are you a member of the Pelvic Academy? Why or why not? And I can tell you with a great deal of certainty, since I graduated from school, I am a member of APTA. I have always been, I will always be, and a member of the Pelvic Academy. And that is because they support us in so many ways. Yeah, that's great. That's really, yeah. So, um Here's my here's my uh, what what my um, contrary question is going to be, Beth. You graduated in '85. Yes. You're like, oh, look, I'm 47, but I want I want you to help the people that are between the ages of me and and you, which you're like a five months older than me, I'm sure. But really, seriously, I work with so many physical therapists who are like, I just can't do the te-. what you just said was so important. How do you overcome this technology? I mean, like Facebook, Instagram, which I didn't grow up with. I'm not that great with. You know, we grew up with, I grew up with an Atari and I only had it five years after all my friends did. What would you say? I want you to share like how with the other physical therapists in your generation, how can they understand or easily understand like how to get their message out to people like in the same ways you have like through through, you know, in public, through social media, like, because there are, it's like, there's some block and I, I, maybe you've had this or not, but you don't have it right now. So is there something you can, yeah, I have had the block, right? How'd you get by it? How'd you get by it? I have had situations where I stuck my heels in and I said, I am not going to learn this. I'm not going to go this way right now. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm uh, kind of 
uh, working through Google Docs and dr Google Drive and storage <laughs> issues with all of these things that I've created now. I, I've got to store them somewhere and easily access them. Um, so uh, what I would say is surround yourself with people who are able to understand and help. The Journal Club is a really good example of this. Mm -hmm. I started the Journal Club in 2010. And I started with uh, the, the people that I uh, knew were teachers, inviting them personally to take a month and to, you know, be able to uh, provide this service of reviewing articles. Uh, but as time went on, I would send out through the Journal Club email and say, look, I, I need somebody to help with a blog because we've got to be able to load these things somewhere. Mm -hmm. And then so I have this girl now who's a really helpful blogger and I just send her my stuff and she puts it where it needs to be or changes the color or whatever. Yes. Um, so I have work to surround myself with people who are um, have different skills There's one girl who helps me with MailChimp I have another girl that's working on um, some of the things related to Instagram I have an Instagram uh, mm -hmm. account I don't know if you've seen that uh, the journal club is over uh, I don't know a thousand followers I never get on it because I don't know how to <laughs> I let the other girl do it right um, but I think for me, I have, uh, I am the kind of person, I'm not worried about technology. When EMG first came out, I didn't look at the book. I just got on the machine and I just clicked around and I, you know, what does this do and what does that do? So uh, maybe that's different from some of the people of my mm -hmm. generation. Uh, but that's how I got into Facebook is that I just started clicking around and uh, trying different things and connecting in different groups and posting things and when the quarantine hit and I started to put things in about telehealth, I, I could not believe the response. And I was like, wow, this is how it works. Now I'm, I'm in there. I get it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was really uh, yeah. quite an alerting experience yeah. in that way. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. It, you know, it's my dad, my dad, like I've had to tell him twice this year, like to delete a video, it's Facebook Live of his forehead. My uncle's done the same thing and they're like 85. I'm like, yo, you guys delete that. They're like, I don't know how we did that. They had to press like three buttons to get there. But I, I think it's important because what you said is it's our duty to get this information in front of people and create content. But if I can't figure it out, it's not like, how do I do it? It's like, who do I find that can help me do it? And I think that's what I'm hearing from you. So yep. thank you very much. Um, Beth, I, there's probably 20 other questions I have, but uh, we're about out of time. I'd love to know, um, can you share a little bit about, uh, like if someone's interested in the Journal Club, like where do they find the information about that or how do they go about getting on the uh, getting on the notification list? I'm not sure if it's an email thing anymore or if it's a membership site or something different, but I'd love you to how to find that now. Right, so uh, my website is my name, bethshelley.com. And I am in the process of redoing that as well, my more techie things. Mm -hmm. But right on the homepage, there is a button that says Journal Club. And when you open up that page, you will see information about the Journal Club. It's completely free. Uh, we usually hold it on Wednesday night um, at 7.30 uh, Central Time. Uh, the first Wednesday of every month. But, you know, all that information there, you'll see the schedule. It's done up for one year. And there is a link that's a sign-up link, and it's a MailChimp uh, situation. So you mm -hmm. just put your email in there. You're automatically into the email. And whenever the articles go out, two articles every month, there's a full article, unless we have issues with copyright and we have to just post in the link um, to where you would find it or download it. But most of the time they're PDFs and then the recordings are uh, done so that you can go back and listen to the recordings that will come out again in an email and going to the blog will take you there. Uh, but that's where you can find other information about other um, educational products that I have, the WCS mentoring. I have a, a page that says free stuff. So I've uh, listed links to uh, like AUA guidelines and things that would be interest of interest to mm -hmm. people in the uh, field there as Great. well. Great. Thank you very much. Yeah, I know it's, it was really stuff that was really helpful for me when I was getting started and, you know, I had to go out and find like new, the right information and, and I found your stuff back in 
so it was uh it was was it twenty twelve which seems like a long time ago, but that's only what nine years ago now mm-hmm. um so thank you very much um Beth if there's one more thing uh you have to share or maybe a question I didn't answer you know is there something that you think would be important uh before we finish up? Well, I would say that the field of women's health and pelvic therapy is a a wonderfully growing field. Mm -hmm. And if you're looking for a place to expand your business that you're probably not going to have very much um, competition in, this is the place to do it. It's a really very quickly growing field. And I think people can have a great deal of success in business adding that to their model. Yeah, I absolutely agree. The some of the people I work with whose businesses grow the fastest or expand the quickest are you know specializing in pelvic health or adding adding it to their uh, to their services and actually you know educating people about it. So um, so thank you for that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely you're right. So um, Beth, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. I've learned a ton, and I'm sure if I learned you know something, the people listening have, have learned a lot too. So I hope thank so. You. <laughs> this was a pleasure. I look forward to meeting you in person uh, one day when travel resumes and all those things. Um, but until then, uh, thank you so much. And uh, this is the Cash PG Lunch Hour. Um, appreciate uh, you, Beth. And uh, this is Aaron LeBauer. And we'll see you guys on the next show. Um, just keep going and making content. And uh, let us know about it. Thanks. Thank you very much, Beth. Appreciate it. Hey, what's up, it's Aaron. Real quick, if you're just starting a cash-based physical therapy practice or you already have one and you wanna learn how to grow it and scale it, this is for you. I just released my brand new book, The Cash PT Blueprint. Because I wanna get this book in the hands of every physical therapist out there, I wanna give it away to you for free. All I ask is that you pay a little bit of shipping and handling and you'll not only get the steps to create your own cash practice, but the tools to grow it and scale it beyond what everyone else thinks is possible. To snag your copy right now, go to cashptblueprintbook.com. That's C-A-S-H-P-T-B-L-U-E-P-R-I-N-T-B-O-O-K.com. And we get your copy, give me a shout out somewhere on social media, and we'll talk to you soon.